Well, good morning, Westmount. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm bringing you God's word from my home this morning. Uh, the wild ride of this COVID-19 season continues. Uh, just by way of a quick update, uh, one of our sons had a bit of a rash in his toe, and thanks to one of you who helpfully suggested that we bring him in, maybe get a stronger antibiotic, we did that uh, this weekend. As it turns out, immediately they started testing him for COVID-19. Uh, we don't have those results yet. Uh, we will get them soon, but until we do, uh, we obviously want to do the right thing and we need to isolate completely. So hence why I'm coming to you from my home. Uh, saying all that, listen, the doctor said we believe he's fine. Don't think he has it. Uh, but I guess this is a thing uh, in young folks. COVID-19 manifests itself in these blemishes on toes. Who knew? We didn't until this weekend. But uh, listen, Westmount, we're all fine. We're healthy and well. Uh, but just need to do this this morning uh, because we want to do the right thing. Uh, but wow, what a, what a ride uh, this season has been for all of us, has it not been? And uh, we just continue on trusting the Lord in these times. And uh, it's a privilege and a joy this morning to bring you God's word. Uh, so let's, before we do that, uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Join me, Westmount, as we do that. Oh, great and merciful God, we come before you the creator, sustainer, and sovereign head over all things. Today, we recognize and confess our sins before you this week. We have sinned in thought, in word, and in deed. We have sinned in what we have done and in what we have failed to do. We have not lived or loved as you have called us to. We have not bared with one another. We have withheld mercy from one another. We have held a grudge. We have harbored bitterness. We have behaved in a way that does not honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet, Father, even in spite of that conduct, we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you do that because, first and foremost, that is who you are. You are the great God of mercy. You are the great God who has assured us of pardon. You are the great God, the Ancient of Days, from the beginning, revealing yourself to your people as the Lord, Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and, of course, being faithful to forgive iniquity. Lord, that is who you are. But you also, Lord, forgive us of our transgressions, not only because of who you are, but because of what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, who took our place, who took on our sin, who paid our debt and did uh, what, Lord, uh, only he can do. And Father, we are so grateful. We are so thankful. And today we consider your forgiveness and your mercy. Lord, it is uh, that mercy in which we stand and it is the mercy that sustains us from day to day. So, Lord, prepare our hearts to be reminded of your mercy today, especially in such times as we turn to your word this morning and commit it to you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Westman, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn uh, to the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. Uh, Philemon, one of the smallest books of the New Testament, you will find it tucked away between the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews. 
little postage stamp type letter right there tucked away between Titus and Hebrews. Open it up to Philemon as that's where we'll be today. This morning, of course, we return to our spiritual first aid series. A series like all first aid that's not planned and that comes upon you. And that is really the order of the day each day, it seems, right? The unplanned thrust upon us. The suddenness, of course, why? Because of the arrival of COVID-19 everywhere. There's no escaping this virus in such times. And last week, we talked about how all of a sudden, with this intrusion, our lives have changed. Our lives have changed. Physically, yes, and that's well documented, and uh, we can see all kinds of evidence for that. But what's not so apparent sometimes is the change that's come and affected our spiritual life. And maybe for some, your situation has come to a point now where it needs attention. It needs attention. Maybe you realize it, maybe not. But either way, you look around at your circumstance and it has changed. It has changed. The challenge of this virus was once days becoming weeks. Now it is weeks becoming months. And that's becoming an emergency situation for some because this virus hasn't taken problems away. No, it has only amplified them. It's only enlarged them. Last week, we looked at the first and foremost aid that we all need, which is, of course, salvation. Salvation. That's our great first aid. No other aid matters without this, without regeneration, without the indwelling power and assurance of the Holy Spirit. Today, we look at the aid that flows right out of that salvation, the first aid that is only possible because we have been reconciled to God. Thus, it is the spiritual first aid that enables us to be reconciled to others, reconciled to others. It is what every relationship needs in order to be an enduring relationship. It is what the Bible presents over and over again as the mark of rebirth and salvation. It is what Jesus said we are to do when our brother or our sister sins against us. It's what we're to do seven times. It's what we're to do 77 times. Each time that we are wronged by another without exception, there is no exception. We're talking about, of course, forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is the mercy, the pardon, the letting go that is vital to all relationships. And we want to make sure we settle our hearts there this morning. This is the biblical truth. Church, it's been said that you simply cannot have relationships without forgiveness. You cannot have relationships without forgiveness. Yes, a quality, lasting, enduring relationship is just not possible without forgiveness. Forgiveness is what is needed when sinners do life together, when they look to be married, when they look to start a family, when they look to do friendships. You need forgiveness. It is the glue, the practical glue of a quality friendship. And forgiveness is absolutely needed when sinners are confined to each other, not just living together, but when they're confined to each other, like today, like these days. In this virus climate where we're called to shelter at home, where we're called to stay home, when we're told not to go out, what's needed today. Isolating at home means more opportunities to sin against each other. And when there is sin, offense, and hurt 
without forgiveness, there is trouble. There is trouble. Yet, church, it should not be this way for us, for God's reconciled people. We are who we are because of forgiveness. And our lives should, no, our lives must reflect that. We are forgiven by a merciful God, and thus we too must embody who he is. If we are his people, if we are his people, we must embody who he is. And Christian, think with me, God's revealed word leaves no question who our God is. There is no doubt when you open the pages of scripture from start to finish who God is. The book of Exodus, in the beginning where God reveals himself to his people. He does it this way. Remember Exodus 34 verses 6 to 7, Mount Sinai. God says this to his people as he reveals himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. A verse tells us God is merciful. God is gracious. God is forgiving. That is who God is. Later, the Psalms also testify to this same character of God. Listen to Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against who the Lord counts no iniquity. Psalm 130, verse 4. O Lord, the psalmist declares, with you there is forgiveness. What a promise. What a promise. The prophets announce the same, Isaiah 43, 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Chapter 55 says, our God, he will abundantly pardon. Jeremiah 33, 8, the Lord's promise to his rebellious people. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive their sin and rebellion. With the arrival of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, mercy didn't go away. God never changes. In fact, mercy was personified in the person of Jesus Christ. He taught it. Consider the parables that Jesus taught, most famously the parable of the prodigal son. A parable found in Luke 15 about the rebellious son that wants his take, runs away, leaves home, forsakes his father. And yet, when he repents, comes to himself and comes back to father, he is received. Why? Because the father is merciful, merciful with the young son. And not only Jesus teaching that in the New Testament, we find, but also Jesus from his own mouth, through his own experience on the cross, mercy extended by the son of God, Luke, 23 34 Jesus said father forgive them as they were nailing him and crucifying him he said forgive them for they know not what they do mercy extended right at the heart of the crucifixion after the death and resurrection of Christ our reconciliation secure forgiveness became the characteristic of God's people your New Testament demonstrates this over and over again one of the first out of that new church, remember Stephen? Stephen in Acts 7, facing stones in Acts 7, verse 60. What did he say? What did he cry out? He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
again in his moment of death, extending mercy. Forgiveness and mercy, then the fabric of New Testament teaching. We think of verses like Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. What about verses like Colossians 3.13? Bear with one another. Forgive each other. Right through, we have verses like that, right through to entire letters, like the one that's open in front of you right now. This personal letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon. This small personal letter, it's the shortest from the pen of the Apostle. It's a letter all about forgiveness. It's a call to and a picture of mercy. Mercy. And this is an appropriate letter to go in this series where we're getting very practical in this virus environment. Because, this is practical, because this is not teaching on forgiveness. This is not a parable on forgiveness. No, this is forgiveness applied. This is forgiveness actually in practice. And this may be just what we need today as you look at your situation and you ask, how can I forgive? How do I forgive? This letter will help you today. To begin, we need to understand the context and the occasion of this letter. Philemon was a Colossian. He was from the Colossian church. He was converted under Paul's ministry, presumably in Ephesus. Remember, Paul had a widespread ministry in Ephesus, and Colossian is a neighbor to Ephesus, so to speak. So presumably he was converted there. Philemon had a wife, Aphia, and a son, Archippus, a very much a family ministry team. And Philemon also was a man of means. He was wealthy. Say, how do we know that? Well, we know that because he had the church of Colossae in his house. In his house. This comes out in the first uh, few verses of this letter. Uh, Man had to have means and wealth in order to have a whole church in his home. And in fact, Philemon's home becomes the focus of the Colossian church as we read this letter. Philemon also, as was the custom back then, certainly for a man of means, he had slaves. Philemon had slaves. Again, that was not uncommon at all. That was the practice. And slaves, we've talked uh, about a number of times, have we not, here at Westmount? Very different back then. concept of slaves was very different back then. Slaves were treated well. They were treated like employees. In fact, when you get the household codes that speak to that employee relationship where we get those principles of employee-employer, they're actually rooted on the master and servant uh, codes of the ancient Near East. The slaves were treated well like employees, and in fact, many sought that for their life, which maybe would be hard for us to understand, but they did. It was not looked down on. In fact, many looked at that as a way to provide for their own families, to go into a household, right, and be a slave to another. Slaves were actually often better off than free men. They were assured, and there it is, assured of food, assured of shelter. They were taken care of well. Slaves could have been doctors, musicians, teachers, artists, librarians, accountants, Even more, and this historical fact has bearing on our study today, many slaves in the first century shared deep relationships with their masters. That's really important. This was not an arm's length relationship so often in the first century. They had good quality, dear relationships 
with their masters. This is far from the picture that probably comes to your mind when you hear the word slave, and that is what? The wickedness and oppression of slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries. That centuries, not just historically, but certainly in practice, is a far removed practice from the first century of slavery. Slaves in New Testament times were loved and cared for, and again, there was relationship. This was very likely the case with Philemon and one of his slaves, and his name was Onesimus. Onesimus. Onesimus was the resident of a Christian home with a Christ follower as a master. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, he would have been treated well. And this comes out in this letter, as we'll see shortly. Philemon's character is seen as this letter opens. Yet with all that, Onesimus was not a follower of Christ. He was lost. He was lost. He felt no compulsion to honor his obligations, nor to live morally at all. Hence, one day he takes off, very likely taking some of his master's money and his stuff. Not unlike the young prodigal, but the difference with Onesimus would be he didn't ask. He just took off. However, somewhere along the way, he ends up in Rome. In Rome, and runs into, lo and behold... The Apostle Paul, maybe not only the Apostle Paul, but maybe one of his associates that's with him in Rome, and one of those would have been Epaphras, who was the pastor of the Colossian church, who spent time with Paul in Rome. We don't know the details of that interaction. We just know that divine providence connected Onesimus and Paul in Rome, which is just amazing. That is summarized so eloquently by Paul, verse 10, he says, I'm sending him to you. He, is, he was useless to you before, right? But now he's useful to both of us as he comes back. We're going to look at that in a moment. Something happened to bring them together. And now Onesimus is changed. Onesimus is saved. Onesimus is a new man. Get that, Westmount, as we think about this letter. Onesimus now is a new man. And Onesimus now, rebirth, with rebirth in him, the Holy Spirit in him, wants to go home. But consider the circumstances of him leaving, and the question looms, what kind of reception will he get? Onesimus, you just took off, and you took some of your master's stuff. What kind of reception will he get? I mean, one could say, after all you did, Onesimus, after all the kindness Philemon gave to you, you just take off, you broke your bond, and you took from your master. In the wake of that reality and such questions, Paul writes this letter to Philemon. He sends Onesimus back to Colossae with this letter in hand. What a picture. Go back to your master, but here's a letter. And a letter that actually is an appeal. We'll see this in verse 9 in a moment. It's an appeal. A loving, brotherly appeal. And in this letter's appeal, Westmount will see two foundational truths of forgiveness. So important and so helpful for us today. One, we'll see the conditions for forgiveness, and two, the command to forgiveness. And as we think about those two things that we'll see, I just want to say off the top, the intention of our study today is an overview of the book of Philemon. We're going to pull broad principles from this book. We're not drilling down, we're not doing complex word studies, all of that verse by verse by what we're familiar to here at Westbound. The idea here is to look at this picture, this personal letter, and derive principles for our uh, concepts of forgiveness. So let's do that together. 
verse, the conditions for forgiveness. Look at verse 1 with me, the conditions for forgiveness. We read, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. As this letter opens, a few things become very, very clear. Paul opens this letter, this appeal for forgiveness, by highlighting some realities. The first is in verse 1. Paul considers himself, what? A prisoner for Christ Jesus. Do you see the language there? A prisoner for Christ Jesus. That's amazing imagery. Now that would be taking the slave image to a whole other level, would it not? This is being a captive for Christ. A captive for Christ. This imagery, not only because Paul himself is in prison when he writes this letter, this is one of the so-called prison epistles, along with Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians, right? These prison epistles. But this is imagery that's apt not just because of Paul's actual situation, but his spiritual situation. Paul is indeed a prisoner for Christ. That's been the reality of Paul's existence since his conversion, as we see in Acts 9, captive to Christ. This is who Paul is in relation to Christ, his prisoner. Paul is kept, he's constrained, he's guided, and here it is in complete subjection and control to his Lord, Jesus Christ. But here it is, as Paul opens his letter, it's in other words, as he's going to say to his brother Philemon, I'm not the only one. He notes his brother, who is that? His kindred in the spirit, Timothy. And he addresses Philemon as what? His fellow worker. That's a word of unity. That's a word that says we are together in this. And in what? In prisonership of Christ. Simply, it means that Philemon may be in Colossae, but he too, Philemon, he too is a prisoner, like Paul. Both prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not overstatement as this letter begins. This is an opening reminder to Philemon of who he is. Simply, Philemon, my brother, my fellow worker, you are not your own. You are not your, your own. You too are a prisoner. You are a fellow prisoner of Christ. He is your master. He is your Lord. He directs you. And that condition is important for what Paul is going to lay out that needs to be done. That condition where Christ is Lord is the first necessary condition we see here for forgiveness. Church, this is all that we talked about last week. Without salvation, this is not possible. And in a way, Paul is saying that here. That reminder, you are Christ. So the issue that I'm going to lay before you is not a matter of your opinion. It's a matter of the fact that you're a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Without salvation, forgiveness is not possible. 
Unless you are a prisoner of Christ, forgiveness and market, Westman, true forgiveness cannot happen. It just cannot happen. Which brings us to another condition here. Look in verse 3. This is where we see it. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. Grace to you. The raw material of our peace and forgiveness from God. Beloved, forgiveness is not possible without grace. True from God, true from you. Forgiveness is only possible by the grace of God, which, Christian, you now have access to. You now have access to. How can you forgive, you may ask? How can I forgive? Well, you cannot forgive without grace. You can't do it without grace. And we need to understand grace then in order to do that. As God did with you, that grace and salvation, remember? What was that? God withheld something that you deserved. You wronged God, right? And God withheld what you deserve. And he bestowed on you something you didn't earn. That's grace. That's grace. Grace and salvation. Forgiveness understands that when you extend mercy to another, you're extending something that here it is, is not earned or deserved. At the heart of forgiveness, at the heart of grace, there's an understanding that you are extending something that's not earned or deserved. It's freely given. How quickly we forget that Christian when we've been wronged against. Is that not true? How readily we need to remind it of this condition for forgiveness. Listen to me. The law produces vengeance. The law produces vengeance. But grace and only grace produces forgiveness. The law produces vengeance, grace produces forgiveness. So being a prisoner to Christ and living by that grace that saved you, those are the primary conditions for forgiveness as this letter opens. Yet there is more. Paul says, look at verse 5. Paul says, I hear of your love. I hear of your love. Philemon's reputation precedes him. Love, forgiveness in love. Forgiveness can only be delivered in love, in self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Philemon had that love. Again, it went before him. People knew of Philemon's love. Philemon was the kind of man, and you just get this in these opening verses, that gave himself to the saints. Paul talks about his hospitality in verses 4 to 7, that he, he gives that refreshing of the saints. Philemon was a man that gave. And that love that Philemon had is another condition here for forgiveness. And note this love that denies self. Love that denies self. And is that not the kind of love that is at the heart of forgiveness? Love that denies what we think we're owed when we've been wronged against. Love that says, I put that aside. I'm not looking for payback. But what am I going to do in love? I'm going to absorb that offense. I'm going to absorb that offense. Love takes it on, this kind of love. Forgiveness operates out of this love, this self-giving love. Beloved, there is no forgiveness without it. Also, as we think of the conditions that gave way to forgiveness, consider also that this type of love that Philemon has is a love, and we're going to see this, that's already in practice. This is a love that's already in practice. Paul doesn't start by saying, you know what, brother, I need you to dig down and find this gear that you haven't used in a while since salvation. No, 
He doesn't say that at all. He appeals to who Philemon is ongoing. In fact, look at verses 4 to 7. What does he say? I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. That's just practice. In verse 7, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is who Philemon is. He's been using it, this love. He's been operating out of this love in his ministry. Amazing. Paul says, I hear of your love and faith for all the saints, the joy and the comfort and the refreshment, all from you, Philemon. This is what you've been doing. Philemon's love is a love, here it is, that is well exercised. A love that is well exercised. And that's important for us, Westmount. In this time of pandemic, we're dusting off things, right, that we haven't used in a while. I was reading this week about the renaissance of the telephone. People are discovering the phone again. They've been texting and emailing. Is that not true? That's just the world, right? I need to get in touch with so-and-so. I throw a text and an email. And this particular article was talking about the fact of the renaissance of the telephone. We're picking up the phone again, dusting off this thing. And here it is that is good, that is needed, that is the backbone of relationships, an actual voice-to-voice conversation versus just digits and letters and so on. Beloved, love that produces forgiveness is the same kind of thing. It's not something we dust off in a moment of need. No, this should be our practice ongoing. Like we need to be reminded these days that voice-to-voice conversation is essential to quality relationships in the same way we need to understand forgiveness needs to be something we're practicing regularly. In fact, forgiveness should be well exercised in your life. Forgiveness is not just a form of love that you pull out in times of COVID-19. No, forgiveness is rather love in action. It's needed all the time, pandemic or not. Again, we need to remind ourselves non-virus times, good times, so to speak, have just allowed us opportunities to avoid and dodge these things that we uh, really need to pay attention to. However, we would say, and we've said this repeatedly during this virus season, one of the blessings of this COVID-19 environment is how God has painted us into a corner. And we have no choice but to look at some of these things. And maybe it's a pattern of unforgiveness in your life. In other words, if we're having trouble forgiving right now in these times when it's needed the most in close quarters, then maybe we've had an issue with forgiveness before COVID-19 hit. Church, that's not an option for us that would profess Jesus Christ, that those that truly follow Jesus Christ. The conditions for forgiveness, the fertile soil from which it springs, are what we see in these opening verses. Salvation. Salvation, being a prisoner of Jesus Christ, calling him Savior and Lord, and not just calling him Lord, practicing that Lordship. Two, it's grace, the character of God that gives us what is not deserved, and then we extend that to others. Three, love, love that doesn't cling to self-rights, what it's owed, but itself gives. And with that love that's already in practice. Friends, if those conditions are not present, then forgiveness will not be either. That's the first part of this letter, the conditions of forgiveness. Let's look now to the second part of this letter and what we would call the command to forgiveness. The command to forgiveness. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. Going to read from there. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. 
I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, here it is, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even yourself, your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. So much here as this account unfolds that is helpful for us this morning. But let's start with the biggest one. Go right back to verse 8. Paul says to Philemon, In Christ I could command you to do what is required. In other words, forgiveness is required if you are a Christian. In other words, forgiveness is not optional. It's not. It means there's no room for responses such as, I can't forgive that. Or I don't want to forgive that. I just don't feel like doing it. I'm just way too hurt. No. There's no room for responses or attitudes that say, you know what, I'm just not the forgiving type. Other people are far more merciful than me. I'm just not the forgiving type. There's no room for that in the Christian life. To be a Christian is to forgive. And we need to state that bluntly here. To be Christian is to forgive. It is the command of the Christ follower. And that command is found throughout the New Testament by Christ, as we looked at already earlier, of course, his teaching, we think about it in Matthew 18. And in other letters, think of Colossians. Again, we looked at Colossians 3, Ephesians 4. The blunt commands, forgive one another. Forgive one another. That is a command, and it's the duty of every true Christian to forgive. And that is also why forgiveness is a matter of obedience. If we talk about it being a command, then we have a choice to respond to that command. <coughs> That's right. That's why you see this in verse 21. Look at what Paul, look at the language Paul uses. He says, confident of your what? Obedience. Confident of your obedience. The command to forgiveness is clear. But West now we need to say this, because it is our command, doesn't mean it needs to be commanded. Because it's our command, it doesn't mean it needs to be commanded. Paul says, I could command you, I could do that, but verse 9, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. You see that? I could command you, but for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul appeals in love to Philemon, and I mean, that's the whole tone of this letter. Remember, we said it's an appeal. 
It's an appeal. And this makes sense for forgiveness because authentic forgiveness is not forced. It's not forced. True forgiveness from the heart is given of the heart. It's not coerced. Coerced forgiveness is the stuff of sibling strife. Maybe you see this with your children, your grandchildren. Maybe this is true in your home growing up, right? Siblings have an offense with one another, right? And what does mom say? You go forgive your your brother right now, your sister right now, right? That's that coerced forgiveness. And what do you see the child do? Well, mommy said, I need to forgive you. That's, that's coerced forgiveness. That is required forgiveness. But that's not, here it is, that's not real forgiveness, is it? That's not real forgiveness. And what we want to be clear on is that forgiveness is our command. Now, we need to settle that in our minds. That's the bedrock. It is our command, no doubt. But it doesn't need to be. In fact, with the Holy Spirit with us, with the love of God in us, it shouldn't be. And that's Paul's point here. As it often does then, it only needs to be appealed. It only needs to be appealed. And often an appeal that simply presents two things. Two things because we still have, what did we learn in Galatians, that remnant clinging to us, the flesh, that wants to hold on to certain things. So we need that help, that divine prodding. And we'll see in this letter two things that God gives us to help us. One is an opportunity and two is accountability. You're going to see both presented here in this letter, in the second portion. Super helpful for us. First, let's look at the opportunity. Look at God's sovereign hand. Let's scroll back to verse 14. Paul says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. There's the reminder that this is an appeal. I love Paul's winsomeness. I prefer to do nothing without your consent, so that it's of your own accord. But then this, verse 15, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted, he being Onesimus. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Amazing. Paul says, this is perhaps God's sovereign hand at work. He was separated from you for a while so that he can be returned not only to you, but to both of us as a beloved brother. This is opportunity. This is God's hand, God's sovereign hand over the situation. Philemon, you and Onesimus parted for a while, but to be brought back forever. It was a temporary work of the sovereign hand of God for this eternal relationship. I mean, we can talk about the providence that brought Onesimus to Rome, but Paul's point here is the opportunity that that providence afforded. And it's the same opportunity you have now, Christian, right here in this pandemic. You have a sovereign appointment right now to forgive. Listen to me. Now is the time. Now is the time. You would find ways to be apart before. It's so easy when you can live the house and be ships passing in the night and uh, be too tired for that conversation and go to bed and, and fill up your calendar with to-dos. It's easy to avoid forgiveness in such times. But now are not normal times. Now are not the times that you've taken shelter in, right? Now what? Consider the fact that you have a divine opportunity to forgive. That's one, the opportunity. Two, consider the accountability. Look at the witnesses at the end of this letter. Look at verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. Remember, Epaphras 
is very likely the pastor in Colossae. Verse 24, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So this is not uncommon to the end of Paul's letters. Some familiar, some not so familiar names, but the point is not who they are. Again, if we were working through this letter, drilling down verse by verse, we would go through them. Some of them you know, some of them you don't know. The fact is not who they are. The fact is where they are. They're here at the end of this letter. Witnesses to this appeal from Paul. <clears throat> and it's that gentle, divine accountability that we often need, isn't it? That divine accountability to know that others know. To know that others know and to feel the weight of that, the good weight of that. What are you going to do now that they've come to you? They're repentant. They are sorrowful. What are you going to do? And to know that others are waiting on us. You can feel this hanging over the letter. Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, he is sorrowful. He is a changed man. And he wants to come back. Think about all the things Onesimus could do. And where does he want to go? He wants to go back into the frying pan, if you will. He doesn't know what awaits him, but this demonstrates that he is truly sorrowful. And here are the names that know it now. Often, beloved, that is the merciful hand of God propping us up, calling us to forgive. Often reminding us that there are others like us who are not only called to forgive, but like us, others who have been forgiven who have been forgiven. And Christian, could there be a more important reminder? Could there be a more important reminder with forgiveness? The reminder of who we are. We are children of a forgiving God. We are children of mercy. We are children of mercy. And if we're truly people of the one who gives mercy because he is mercy, then we too would give that mercy. Because why? By extension, that's who we are then. We're his children, children of a merciful God, Hence, it would stand to reason that we would give mercy. I think, church, our first day today might just be simply a reminder of that fact. We may be facing someone wronging us, but we too have wronged someone. We too have wronged someone. Paul reminds Philemon of this. Look at verse 17. Paul says this, So if you consider me your partner, right? If you consider us one in this, in Christ together, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. The implication there is he has. Whatever Onesimus took with him, he's wronged Philemon. But then listen to this. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then this, he says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Hmm. Philemon, it turns out, is a debtor as well. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul says to Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Yes, me, Paul. And remember, Philemon, you are a debtor as well. You owe me a debt. And it's as if Paul says, and if you want to speak about debts, speak about the fact that you owe me your whole self, your whole self. This is the gentle reminder to Philemon. What a debt. And more, whatever debt Onesimus has against you, Philemon, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. So Paul says, Philemon, you're owed a debt, but brother, you're also a debtor. Paul reminds his friend of this important truth that fuels the command to forgive. And it's simply this, Christian, you must forgive. You can only forgive. Here it is, because you yourself are forgiven. You must forgive. You can only forgive because you yourself are forgiven. 
Westmount, let's not miss the connection embedded at the heart of this letter here. Your debt paid by another. That's like what we see here between Paul and Philemon. Paul says, whatever loss or money he cost you, I'll repay it. Westmount, that must sound familiar. That must echo. That must echo of a greater debt. <clears throat> it is nothing compared to what you owe me, Paul says. It's nothing compared to what you owe me, which is, verse 19, your own self. Christian Paul and Philemon are nothing short of the picture of you and Jesus Christ. That's the picture here. Christ paid the debt for us that we could never afford. He said, I'll pay. He forgave. And in light of that biggest debt paid, Philemon, Christian, can you not forgive? Can you not forgive because of the greater debt that you owe or have owed? This may remind some of you of a parable that Jesus told to his followers. Like Peter, who it seems, maybe you relate to Peter again, in a season where he was getting exasperated with this concept and teaching of forgiveness. Turn with me to Matthew 18. This is so the apostles, isn't it? Jesus is teaching something, and if they either miss it, if they don't miss it, they're tired of it. This is the apostles and how they receive it. Well, this is true of Peter. We pick up this account here in verse 21. Very famous account, but I think as we close today, we just need this reminder of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness and this principle that we see with Paul and Philemon is no different to the words of Jesus here. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Peter comes up to Jesus. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You can just feel the, the ethos in that question, right? How often do I need to forgive? How often? As many as seven times? That's a really noble thing. I mean, seven times would be something. Jesus topped that. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Again, we don't know what Peter's reaction was, but maybe you know what your reaction is to that. Seven times after what they've done, and now you would say 77 times? And to Peter and to you, beloved, Jesus says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's quite an amount. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And just see the plea. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii, nothing compared to what he owed his master. Yet, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? This is what he said to his master in wake of the greater debt. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. It's like the accountability, right? The witnesses are like, how can this happen? Then his master, verse 32, summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words... I forgave you the bigger debt, the greater debt, all that you owed. And yet this small thing that someone owed you, you can't let go. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
So also my heavenly Father will not do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The principle there, and see how it ends there, forgiveness from the heart. Jesus really gets at what the issue could be. The principle here of withholding a small debt in the wake of this great death, debt that you've been given or granted. In the wake of that great one, Jesus says through this parable, you cannot extend small mercy horizontally. This is the command to forgive. And here it is in verse 35 from the heart from Jesus. Forgiveness from the heart that we can be confident that Philemon extended, by the way. I mean, the letter of Philemon is in the biblical canon for a reason. And even outside the Bible, scholars debate if a certain second century bishop, Ephesian bishop, is this same Onesimus. The debate rages on. The forgiven Onesimus that rises to this church office, who knows? We can never know. It's a great story from slave to bishop, but the point is Onesimus Onesimus was forgiven. We know that because this letter is in the canon. And that's the encouragement and blessing when forgiveness is extended. But this closing parable provides a warning when forgiveness is withheld. We can learn, and this is what we want to end with. Again, this series is practical, and we want to get very practical before we leave this morning. The unforgiving servant, remember him, was delivered over to jailers. Beloved, it's like bondage. Because he withheld forgiveness, he was subject to bondage. And that is, of course, what is to be expected if forgiveness is withheld. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples who were tiring of forgiveness. And I ask you, is that you today? Are you growing tired of forgiveness? In this pandemic, have you had enough of forgiveness? Are you withholding forgiveness from another? Westmount, we need to heed these four things that lacking forgiveness equates to. Again, as we get practical here, here are four things, very simply, very straightforward, that will happen, will happen when we withheld forgiveness. Number one, a lack of forgiveness equals a lack of joy. A lack of forgiveness equals a lack of joy. In fact, a lack of forgiveness is not just something being the absence of joy, but the presence of something else. And if there's no joy, then there's what? Bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness is joylessness, and it's the product of withheld forgiveness. Bitterness, or the bitter root, as Hebrews 12, 15 calls it, causes trouble in your life. Bitterness distorts your thinking and your perspective on all of life. Forgiveness, on the other hand, replaces bitterness with what? Love, joy, peace. And this makes sense. Bitterness and joy are at odds, just like the spirit in the flesh. Spirit in the flesh. Forgiveness is a work of the Spirit. Two, a lack of forgiveness equals a lack of strength. A lack of forgiveness equals a lack of strength. A lack of forgiveness is like living with all your spiritual defenses down. It's like you just throw off all caution. And it's an open invitation to Satan. In 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, Paul makes clear that forgiveness disarms Satan's schemes and removes any advantage. What a powerful verse. What a powerful verse. What a weapon. That makes forgiveness, right? Not just an ethic, but a weapon, an armor in our Christian life. Amazing. Forgiveness cripples the deceiver. Think about that. It puts him back. It puts him down when you forgive. If you're feeling weak spiritually, could it be that you're not forgiving? Could it be that you're not forgiving? 
Third, a lack of forgiveness equals a lack of healing. Forgiveness is what enables spiritual healing in the wake of sin. It's the first day that allows the wound to begin healing. But when we withhold forgiveness, we leave the wound exposed and it just throbs. It throbs in pain. Unforgiveness is simply carrying that pain around. Pain, infection, and all. For a lack of forgiveness equals a lack of relationship. This, of course, has two dimensions. One is with neighbor, and that is obvious. Unforgiveness obviously affects your earthly relationships. We've talked about that before, but let's make it clear as we end. Unforgiveness robs days, it robs weeks, it robs months, and sadly, in cases, it robs years. It robs years. And years that you cannot get back because you withheld forgiveness. Yet as tragic as that is, there's an even more devastating relationship that's affected. In the Sermon on the Mount, where we were last week, Jesus said this in chapter 6, verse 23, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Wow. In other words, God doesn't want you offering anything to him until you are first reconciled to others. Did you hear that from Jesus? He doesn't want any offering from you unless you are first reconciled to your brother. Forgiveness, yes, Westmount, matters much to God. And as such, your relationship with him is deeply connected to it. In fact, Jesus said later in Matthew six fourteen, here again his words, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is the root of fellowship with neighbor and with God. Westman, let us heed the caution as we consider our lack of forgiveness today. But let us also be reminded that we, as imperfect, stubborn, flesh-prone folks, may withhold forgiveness, but God never does. God never withholds mercy to you. God forgives eagerly, totally, and lavishly. And when God forgives, it has no conditions. And here this Westbound, when God forgives, it is for eternity. It's forever. Beloved, you are forgiven by the great forgiver. And you have what Paul says here to close this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amazing. And because of that grace, that mercy from God, beloved, because you have been forgiven by God of your great debt, because of that, you can go now and forgive smaller debts. You can in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder out of this letter from Paul to Philemon that we have been forgiven a great debt. And because of that, we can forgive much smaller debts. God, help us to do so now, we pray, as we go and look to live out this reality of our salvation, of Christ in us, and the reality that we are children of mercy. God, help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.